What you're about to listen to is part three of a four-part series about the Jacobite Wars, the 45, Bonnie Prince Charlie, and the last charge of the Scottish Highlanders. If you haven't listened to part one or two, you're going to miss out on a lot of important context, so I recommend that you do that. If you are all caught up, let's get on with the show. The year, 1745. The place, Central England. Bonnie Prince Charlie and his Jacobite army march south with London in their crosshairs. The future of Britain, America, and the world swing in the balance. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. This is episode 13, The Jacobite Wars Part 3, Decision at Derby. I am your host, James Hauser, and I am glad to have you back. Today we continue the narrative of the 45, the great mostly Scottish uprising of 1745 against the British government, and the road to the Battle of Culloden. Hope you guys are ready to go back on campaign, bonnets and tartans and all. Now, since I'm not a complete jerk, I'm going to give you guys a quick recap. Now, where were we? Oh yeah, the last Stuart King of England, James II, was overthrown by his daughter Mary and her husband William in what became known as the Glorious Revolution. James and his family were forced into exile, and their efforts to regain the throne for the Stuart dynasty became known as the Jacobite cause. It was the Jacobites versus the New Order, the political and economic transformation that the Glorious Revolution created. In the 1720s and 1730s, all hope for the Jacobites seemed lost, but James II's grandson, Prince Charles Edward Stuart, known to legend as Bonnie Prince Charlie, believed in his family's destiny and decided to turn it into reality. Taking advantage of a new war between Britain and France, Charlie sailed to Scotland and rallied the reluctant Highland clans to his cause. He led them into the Scottish lowlands, seized Edinburgh, and defeated the British army at the Battle of Preston Pans. Now the Jacobites controlled most of Scotland, and the restoration of the exiled king seemed to be at hand. Scotland was conquered. Would England be next? And that is where we left off. So if you don't remember that, you may want to listen to the last couple episodes. So if you haven't, I will give you the chance to go back and check that out. Three, two, one. If you're here, I assume you're good. So let's go. If you weren't aware, this is not just history, but military history, so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast remains PG-13, language is clean, the content is not. All my sources for the whole series will be posted on one big mega post on my website, so you can fact check me if you want to. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So, let's get into it. So today's story, like I said, will continue where we left off last week, with Charles and his Highland army victorious over the forces of the British government at the Battle of Preston Pans, and now in control of most of Scotland. They seemed to be on the road to victory. Everything had gone their way. Didn't last week almost seem like kind of a fairy tale, like a heroic epic or a fantasy novel, with the young, handsome prince calling out the clans to regain his father's throne? Well, guys, today's episode will bring us back down to Earth. 
because this is where the fantasy begins to fall apart. This is where the Bonnie Prince of Scottish Romance runs smack into cold reality. This is also where everything I talked about in episode 11, the exiled kings, all those major forces, those political, economic, national, and religious forces, all the big problems the Jacobites always faced, all the necessary ingredients of success, this is where those, all those things come back into the climax. Just to recap, we have political issues with the Stuarts asserting absolute monarchy, the divine right to rule. We have national issues, the divisions between England, Scotland, and Ireland. We have religious issues between the Catholics and the different types of Protestants. And now we add the economic problems caused by the emergence of modern capitalism and the vast financial power of the British government of the Hanoverian dynasty. Then we have all the challenges any Jacobite uprising faced. Superior British intelligence and spy services, lack of communication between different Jacobite networks, French ambivalence and hesitation to help the Jacobites, and the Royal Navy's ability to block any outside assistance from reaching the Jacobites when an uprising had begun. Then you have all the necessary ingredients for any successful Jacobite rising. A strong Scottish turnout, support from the English Jacobites, material support from France, and good leadership. And if you're keeping track from last week, we have number one, Scottish uprising. But English Jacobites in France are going to be harder to come by. And finally, we're going to settle on the question of leadership. It's my opinion that, in general, one of the most important skills in military leadership is the ability to work with other people, to compromise, to persuade, to get people moving in the same direction. That's the hardest part, in my opinion. Not genius, not creativity, not brilliant tactics or hard work or even courage. It's the ability to get along you can be the greatest military genius ever, but if you can't work with other people, it's wasted because you alone cannot win a war. We will see the leaders of the 45, from Prince Charles on down, fail, fail at this critical leadership skill today. The conflict today is not the British versus the Jacobites, although that is a conflict, not, it's not, that's not really the story. It's the Jacobites versus the Jacobites. It's the descent in the high command that set them on the road to defeat. All the factors, all the issues, all the challenges of the Jacobite cause culminate today. And all, all of it will come together when a decision is made at Derby. And just to remind you of our big question for this series, did things have to be this way? Could they have been different? Could the tide of history be reversed? Can the new order be undone? Let's keep that in the back of our heads as we step, once again, to 1745. Today, we will continue the story of the 45. We will see the Jacobite High Command make three important decisions that will determine the fate of their cause and the fate of world history. We're going to take a step back from just focusing on Scotland and see how Britain and France reacted to the 45 and what they did to stop or help the Jacobite army. And we're going to march to Derby, a town in Middle England, as history tilts in the balance. And of course, it's an epic story, so there'll be breaks. When I stop talking, the music comes in, make your protein shake, do some sit-ups, or don't. Whatever you gotta do. So don your tartan, grab your broadsword, and let's go back on campaign.
Where are we going, you ask? Okay, guys, we're picking up where we left off last week, with Bonnie Prince Charlie and his Jacobite army returning to Edinburgh in triumph after the Battle of Preston Pans. Yay, we won the battle! But once the glow of victory wore off, once the celebration ended, there was one big issue. What the heck do we do now? We've won the battle. How do we win the war? How do we follow up on this success? How do we make the Battle of Preston Pans count? This was a strategic decision point, a moment when the Jacobites had to settle on a strategy for winning the war. It was time for a decision. To help with this decision, a lot of the older heads in the Jacobite High Command pushed Prince Charles to create a war council. Now, Charles, like all the Stuarts, believed in absolute monarchy, the divine right of the Stuarts to rule, so he wanted his orders to be taken absolutely. But he was also A, 24 years old, and B, had virtually no military experience. So the prince agreed to create the council, but he wasn't happy about it, and he wasn't going to get happier. Charles would constantly try to assert his royal prerogative throughout the campaign, and this would make many of the people in his war council very, very edgy. So who was on this council? Whole bunch of folks. We introduced a lot of them last episode. First, there was Charlie's chief staff officer, the Irishman, Colonel John William O'Sullivan. Then the two lieutenant generals, both lowland Scots, the young, talented Catholic Duke of Perth, and the experienced older Protestant Lord George Murray, a man of enormous military ability, but very prickly character. Then you had Charlie's inner council of mostly Irish courtiers, including his tutor and a couple other hangers-on, along with all the Highland clan leaders and the lowland colonels. About 22 people on the council, plus or minus one or two as the campaign went on. Lord George Murray would be the big one. He was something close to a military genius and commanded enormous respect amongst the other Scots, but he was arrogant, stiff, and extremely proud and touchy. Charlie and Murray basically butted heads as soon as they met, and they never stopped. There was an age gap of about 30 years between them, and Murray's experience in the 15 and the 19 made him very cautious. Compare with Charlie, who was impulsive, aggressive, and a born optimist. Their conflict would get downright childish at times, and this would be bad, very bad, for the future of the Jacobite cause. Historian Frank McLenn thinks that Charlie's anger at Murray went deeper, that he saw Murray as a substitute for his father, James III. In Murray, Charlie saw his father's defeatism and weakness. He believed the Jacobites had always failed, Charlie did, because of the unwillingness to take risks, to gamble, to make the leap of faith, the tendency to hesitate when everything mattered. In George Murray, Charles found another older authority figure always trying to hold him back. Talk about daddy issues, right? And their conflict began to divide the war council as soon as it formed. The Highland clan leaders and the lowland colonels looked to Murray as their main leader, and the Irish officers and Catholic exiles looked to Charlie as their main leader. So about five seconds after the war council was created, it divided into two arguing factions. Perfect. Beautiful. There's no way this can go badly. And this council was where all the old issues of the Stuart dynasty came back to haunt them. Scots versus Irish, Catholics versus Protestants, kingship by divine right or rule by a council. Charlie's inner circle believed that Murray was shifty and possibly a traitor. The Scots believed Charlie was surrounded by scheming Irish influences. 
Everyone was always at each other's throats, and this crippled the Jacobite decision-making process. Whenever I imagine one of these war councils, I can't help but imagine like a reality show. I don't know, Survivor, Big Brother, something like that, any reality show. With people insulting and belittling and sniping and generally being dramatic for no good reason at all. But that's a reality show. This is the middle of a war, and there's no time to behave like this. So my theme is, guys, get along. These two factions had radically different visions on how to win the war, which might not have been so bad, but it was worse than that. They had radically different visions on what the war was about, and that was going to be an issue. Each faction had different objectives in the war, which meant that each would have a different strategy for how to defeat the new order, which hinged on one thing. What does winning mean? What does winning look like? For the Scots, for Lord George's faction, winning meant Scottish independence, or at least autonomy. That was the thing they were trying to accomplish with this uprising. Who gave a crap about England or Ireland? All their objectives were Scottish. Their focus would always be on Scotland. But for Charlie, the Irish and the Jacobite exiles, winning meant complete overthrow of the new order. All three kingdoms had to be freed. For the Irish, it was their only way home. And Charlie would never settle for less than his full birthright. It had to be all or nothing. Unfortunately for these guys, the problem with all or nothing is that sometimes you get nothing. Right from the word go, the war council was arguing. No sooner were butts in chairs at the first meeting of the council than Murray, looking right at O'Sullivan, said, hey, we should kick all the Catholics off the council because otherwise the English will whine about a Catholic plot. Murray was already England for the Catholics, England for the Irish, saying they shouldn't be on the council. I don't want them here. Charlie replied to this with, dude, I'm a Catholic, but yeah, that's how this is going to go, right? Guys, get along. When the question of what do we do next came up, Prince Charles knew what to do. He said, we have to invade England. We have momentum on our side. The Highlanders in particular will get bored and go home if they don't keep moving. Lots of people are still on the fence about whether or not to support us. We need another victory to complete what we started at Preston Pans. The British government was busy putting together a new army in northeast England to fight the Jacobites in the area of Newcastle. It was led by General George Wade, who we met back when he built the system of military roads and forts in the Highlands, back in my short round about the Highland clans. He built the roads and the forts. But that had been almost 20 years ago. Now Wade was in his 70s, barely able to mount a horse, let alone lead an army. His little force was one part survivors of Preston Pans, one part new arrivals, one part Dutch mercenaries. Their morale was low, they were still coming together, and Charlie said, let's go, right now, kick their butts. That was Charlie's strategy. Attack, strike now before Wade gets any stronger. Keep the momentum going, keep them off balance, invade England. When in doubt, do something. There was logic to this on a larger level as well. Remember, there were four elements of any successful Jacobite rebellion. They had two, angry Scottish people and good leadership. But they were still missing the two others, English Jacobites and French support. Charlie had tried to make contact with the English Jacobites, but they weren't picking up the phone. They hadn't answered his calls. And as everyone knew, Charlie had come to Scotland in spite of the lack of French support. Another victory, especially a victory in England itself, or a major success like capturing London, 
might convince both of these groups. And finally, Charlie knew that time was not on their side. The longer they waited, the more time the government would have to recover from their shock, marshal their resources, and deal a crippling blow to the Jacobite cause. The new order had the power of manpower, money, and resources at its disposal. And if they could bring those to bear, there would be no hope. The Jacobites had to take them out now, before the war machine could get warmed up. So that was Charlie's answer. Run down to Newcastle, kick Wade in the teeth as fast as hard as we can, keep the ball rolling, keep the pace fast, keep the government off balance. Rally the other clans to their cause, bring out the English Jacobites, and persuade the French that they meant business. But Lord George Murray had a different answer. Apparently a sensible and more logical answer. We need to secure Scotland, build up our forces, make contact with the English Jacobites and the French, and prepare for the government's next move. And this made a lot of military sense, because Scotland was still not quite secure. See, General Cope's defeat at Preston Pants had broken up the only major British field army in Scotland. But the Hanoverians still held multiple fortresses, such as the Highland Forts, Stirling, and even Edinburgh Castle itself. See, the Jacobites held Edinburgh City, but the castle was a thoroughly modern fortress that could hold out for months if it needed to. It was right on the edge of town, and the British forces in the castle were shooting at anything wearing tartan. So that was annoying and deadly. None of these fortresses could be taken without heavy artillery, which the Jacobites were only going to get from France. Then there was Duncan Forbes. Duncan Forbes had become the focal point of Scottish resistance to Charlie and the Jacobite cause. From his base at Culloden House, near Inverness in northern Scotland, he was busy as a bee persuading the pro-government clans to fight the Jacobites, persuading the other clans to keep their heads down, and harassing the Jacobite clans. In October, John Campbell, the Earl of Loudoun, a member of the pro-government Campbell clan, arrived by ship to help Forbes out with money and weapons. Forbes and Loudoun were in the process of raising an army of loyal Highlanders, creating a lot of headaches for the Jacobite cause. Finally, the lack of any open English Jacobite support troubled Murray and the other Scots that made them edgy about going into England. They believed that, just like in 1715, the English Jacobites would be a lot weaker than people said. They would not turn out. So this was Murray's position. Look, look, Prince, we gotta secure our base before we go anywhere else. And this also jived with his faction's Scotland-only strategy. Plus, there was, so far, no sign of actual support from the English Jacobites or the French. Running off into England without these on our side is downright dangerous. Remember that all of us, the Scots, told you not to come without French support. And you basically dragged us kicking and screaming when you did arrive. Now we're saying, dude, we've come this far. But to go any farther, we really need French support or English Jacobite support or something. The debates went on. And throughout these six weeks in Edinburgh, Prince Charles continued to hold court in Holyrood Palace. These days were the time of his life. The good old days that he would always look back on. You know, just this was when he was acting like the king he was believed he was born to be. A typical day involved a council meeting at 10 a.m., lunch with the public, a review of his troops, a meet and greet with his masses of fangirls, and an evening ball. The ladies continued to be charmed by the prince. 
The women were, of course, doing other things like knitting tartans, raising money in soldiers, in some cases even leading soldiers, but we will talk all about that soon. My promise to you, in two weeks, once the series is wrapped up, we're going to do a whole short round focused on the women of the 45. But Charlie wasn't just enjoying himself. He was doing his best to present his regime as a valid alternative to the Hanoverian dynasty. That meant acting like a prince. It meant collecting taxes, holding sessions of court, making himself available. He was already setting up courts and laws and administration. And importantly, it centered on Edinburgh, not London. Edinburgh was a capital again, for the first time in almost three decades, four decades. And even the Whigs, even Scottish Whigs, were excited by the fact that Edinburgh was once again an important place. But Charlie stayed distant from most of the partying. He drank little, slept little, ate little, seems to have turned away most female affection. He was trying to portray the image of a perfect knight, a Galahad, a man committed to his quest who could not be strayed by wine or women or fortune. To Charlie, there was a link between his self-discipline, his behavior, and his future success. He seemed to think that if he kept himself together, the cause would hold together and he would succeed. But the Jacobite War Council argued day after day up in Edinburgh, even as events continued to unfold elsewhere. Down in England, People were losing their minds. They were melting down. This was the greatest crisis the New Order had ever faced, and the government was not ready for it. After the Battle of Preston Pans, King George II and his government were scrambling to handle the new crisis. Militias were raised, walls were repaired, guns were handed out. British intelligence rounded up potential Jacobite agents, because British intelligence always going to get you. The government was shipping its troops back from the continent as fast as they could, bringing troops back over from Europe. They were hiring mercenaries, Dutch mercenaries, Hessian mercenaries from other countries. But all of this took time and no one in England felt safe. There was panic in the air, people were fleeing, the stock market was crashing, the English countryside was running around screaming. General John Ligonier's letter of September 27th describes how rampant the panic was, even in the high command. Accounts have since come that the rebels increase, and some make them amount to 16,000 men, that they have summoned a parliament at Edinburgh to declare that kingdom separate from England under the protection of France, and so that this thing is now grown very serious. Every man seems to think the king's person and crown in imminent danger. There was just fear, man. Think of the fear. Fear everywhere. Fear of economic collapse. Fear that a French puppet would be placed on the throne. Fear of a French invasion across the English Channel. Fear that a horde of barbaric Highlanders was about to swarm into jolly old England and carry off their money, their women, their food, and probably their babies to cannibalize them or whatever. I'm not exaggerating, that last one isn't a joke. Apparently that last one was a real worry that some people had. And most of all, there was fear, stoked to a boil by Whig propaganda, of the Catholic plot of popish rule over the good people of England. To Whigs and diehard Protestants, Charlie was a Catholic usurper, raised in Rome under the shadow of the Pope, in cahoots with France and the papacy and probably the devil himself. England was going berserk. But the French were doing great. With British armies being pulled off the continent, getting out of their way, their great General Marshal de Saxe was rolling over the Allied armies in Belgium. But King Louis XV was still on the fence about helping out the Jacobite cause. 
He did decide to send some shipments of guns, money, and supplies to Scotland, and ordered preparations for an invasion fleet to begin, but held off on committing too much. The real obstacle to French help was always the Royal Navy, which would do its best to prevent any French ships from crossing the English Channel. Commanding the blockade of northern Scotland, doing his best to keep French help, help from reaching the Jacobites, was our old friend, Admiral John Bing, he who would later be executed to encourage the others. Now, a few French ships did manage to slip into northern Scotland at the port of Montrose, bringing weapons, money, and some light artillery. But it was the arrival of Louis' envoy, the Marquis de Guia, that finally pushed the War Council over to Charlie's side. De Guia's arrival seemed to signal that Charlie had been right all along. He had started this adventure without an explicit promise of French support, hoping that by raising Scotland in the name of his father, the French would be forced to help him. And there's a Frenchman right here. Charlie pointed at de Guia and said, look, look, like I told you, the French are on our side. But de Guia wasn't there to promise an invasion. De Guia was just there to see what the heck was going on. What Charlie did not tell the war council was that de Guia brought no promise of a French invasion, no open commitment from Louis XV. What Charlie also did not tell the War Council was that he'd had no contact with the English Jacobites since he left France back in June. He hadn't coordinated with them and didn't even know if they were willing to come out without open French support. He had tried to send messengers into England, but all his spies had been captured and imprisoned pretty much immediately because British intelligence is always going to get you. But Charlie still promised his war council that he was certain the English Jacobites would rally to their cause if they invaded England. Finally, with French support apparently on the way, and with Charlie's promises the English Jacobites would support them, Murray and his faction said, Okay, fine, we'll invade England, but we're not going to attack General Wade's army in northeast England. We don't want to risk a battle with the British. Instead, we're going to invade from the northwest, avoiding and slipping by Wade's army. We'll test the waters, see how good English Jacobite support is, see if we get any word from France. We'll go as far as Carlisle, the first town in northwest England, and we'll see. Charlie was ecstatic, over the moon. He kind of had selective hearing at this point, I'll be very clear. He heard them say, okay, we'll invade England, but he didn't hear the but after that. He didn't hear the, but only if these things occur, where the War Council laid down their conditions. His charisma and some good timing with the appearance of de Guia had persuaded them to follow him into England. How far could he get them to go? How far were they willing to go? Eh, when the time comes, I'll persuade them to go farther. We can do it. Charlie's optimism was not shared by many of his officers. Among them was Lord Elko, a cavalry officer and a member of the council. Here's what he said. The prince knew nothing about the country, nor had not the smallest idea of the force that was against him, nor where they were situated. His Irish favorites had always represented the whole nation as his friends, had diminished much of the force that was against him, and he himself believed firmly that the soldiers of the regulars would never fight against him, as he was their true prince. Granted, keep in mind Elko is writing this after the rebellion already failed, and he's sort of biased. But still, that was how the Scots felt about Charlie's optimism. Either way, the first important decision of the council had been made. Decision number one. 
the Jacobites would invade England. Was this just a raid? A way of testing the waters? A way of gathering supplies? Or a full-on bid to defeat the new order and conquer London? Well, they would figure that out when they came to it. On October 30th, 1745, Prince Charles and the Scottish army set out from Edinburgh on the way south. They had barely been gone a few days before the British garrison of Edinburgh Castle secured the city again, and forces soon arrived from Wade's army to repossess the capital of Scotland. Edinburgh was lost, and Charlie would never see the palace of his ancestors again. The Jacobite army crossed the Esk River into England on November 8th. They had 5,000 infantry and 500 cavalry, divided into two divisions, the Highland Division under Lord George Murray and the Lowland Division under the Duke of Perth, along with an artillery train commanded by the Scottish-born French officer Colonel James Grant. Their first target was the town of Carlisle, an English border town of around 4,000 people. General Wade's scouts learned of Charles's advance against Carlisle. Wade tried to race his troops west to intercept the Jacobites and stop them, but the demoralized and miserable British forces struggled through the snow up the steep slopes of the Pennine Mountains. They were unable to intercept Charles before the Jacobites captured Carlisle on November 16th, and the Duke of Perth, who had led the siege, entered the town in triumph and proclaimed James III as the King of England. The Jacobites had taken their first English town. But Lord George was furious that Perth had been the one to accept the surrender. He had a small point. It was not a good look for a Catholic general to be the conqueror of a Protestant English town if they didn't want to terrify the English into, oh my god, Catholic plot. But Murray didn't help by throwing a temper tantrum, resigning his commission, and declaring that he would march as a private in the ranks rather than bear this insult. Charlie would have been like, huh, sure, but the Scottish officers made it very clear that Lord George was their man and they would not march on if he wasn't restored to his position. So finally, the Duke of Perth offered to accept a demotion instead to smooth things over. This left Lord George as the ranking general in the Jacobite army and left tensions in the war council higher than ever. Okay, George, George, do I have to put you in timeout? Kids, get along. The Jacobites marched south into England as winter grew colder and the days grew shorter. Morale was high. The British couldn't catch them. The Jacobites marched and marched fast, hugging their tartans to them against the wind, their swords and muskets and cannon clanking along as they made their way into England. Charles grew brighter, happier, convinced that he was on the verge of fulfilling his destiny. He walked alongside his Highlanders, charmed everyone he met, seemed to grow almost supernaturally every mile they marched into England. He was on his way. But the more he shone, the more his generals became reluctant. They marched deep into England as the snow fell, and they couldn't stop looking back over their shoulders. Every mile they marched would make it harder to get home. But for Charlie, every mile they marched took him closer to home. These were the hopes and dreams, the doubts and fears, that were about to collide at Derby. The Jacobite army marched south through England, through the heart of winter, and they moved fast. 
Penrith, November 21st. Preston, November 26th. Manchester, the heart of the Midlands, November 29th. Many towns didn't even realize the enemy was at the gates before Lord Elko's cavalry was banging on their doors demanding lodging and food for the prince and his party. They would be followed by ranks of men in tartan, wielding muskets brought by French ships or taken from the field at Preston Pans. Despite everyone's fears about the Highlanders eating their baby or whatever, the Jacobite army behaved surprisingly well for an 18th century army, without a lot of robbing or marauding. The British government scrambled to respond. General George Wade's army was trying to catch the Jacobites, but Wade was old and his men were tired. The rebels were gaining distance every day. The British soldiers suffered badly in the winter. Logistic preparations had not been made for a campaign inside England in the winter of 1745. Weather was horrible. Food stores hadn't been set up. Their winter clothing wasn't ready. General Wade wrote a letter to King George saying, The poor soldiers from long marches and bad roads are many of them barefooted, though we have taken all possible pains to provide them with what shoes the country can afford. My age and infirmities render me incapable of writing to your royal highness in my own hand." The Winter Campaign of 1745 was a shining example of the fog of war. No one knew quite where the enemy army was. It was kind of like playing basketball in the dark. That's what it was like in this period. Each army was taking in rumor, hearsay, newspapers, scouts, random travelers, everything to try and figure out who was where at what time. The British didn't even know what the Jacobites were trying to do. Was it a raid, a link up with the French, an invasion of Wales, or were they targeting London? Guys, join the club because the Jacobites didn't know either. At every major city, the war council would meet and Murray would say, okay, you've had your fun, we've gone far enough. It's time to turn around and go back to Scotland. And Charlie would say, let's keep going. Trust me, we've got this. And Murray would say, all right, let's keep going. Charlie seemed to be popular. He got cheers and female admirers in every town. Preston was a longtime Jacobite stronghold, the site of the English Jacobite army's surrender in 1715, and the reception there was glowing. It was even better in Manchester, one of the most pro-Jacobite cities in Britain, where the gentlemen and ladies of the town came out crying to meet the prince. Young women wove banners bearing the white cockade. Of course, there were plenty of anti-Jacobite Englishmen, especially people who lived in fear of a Catholic plot, and they were running away like Charlie was Freddy Krueger. Here's what one Jacobite said of Charles's approach. The first time I saw this loyal army was betwixt Lancaster and Garstang, the brave prince marching on foot at their head like a Cyrus or a Trojan hero, drawing admiration and love from all those who beheld him, raising their long dejected hearts and solacing their minds with the happy prospect of another golden age. Struck with this charming sight and seeming invitation to leave your nets and follow me, I felt a paternal ardor pervade my veins. Notice how he talks about Charlie like he's literally Jesus? Yeah, dude, calm down. It's not that big of a deal. Despite all the rah-rah support for Charles, something was missing. As the Scots marched south, they met a lot of fans, but very, very few volunteers. In Preston, supposedly the biggest Jacobite stronghold, they got three, not, not I didn't misspeak, three volunteers. 
the Jacobites raised a small 200-man regiment in Manchester, mostly industrial workers and day laborers, the economic underclass of the New Order had left behind. But this 200 men of the Manchester Regiment fell far short of Charlie's promises of thousands of eager fighters. Where were all the English Jacobites? There were a lot of reasons the English Jacobites didn't turn out. One of the big ones was that, well, they saw no evidence of French support, which was kind of a deal breaker. That had always been a big condition for an English Jacobite uprising. A lot of them, too, had probably made their peace with the new order. They might not like the German and his family, but they had food in their bellies and a roof over their heads. Many people also regretted the fact that Charlie was Catholic, and oh, we would come out and support you, but it's just such a shame that you aren't a good, solid Protestant. There was also the fact that not liking the Hanoverians didn't mean you really liked the Stuarts. Maybe you just didn't care who sat on the shiny chair. But the biggest reason, in my opinion, support was easy, action was hard. I made the comment a couple weeks ago that English Jacobites were the 18th century version of keyboard warriors, Facebook commenters, all talk, no walk. They had written so many letters assuring the exiled kings of their loyalty, weaving grand plans, making bold claims. But when the time came, they just didn't turn up. When the rubber hit the road, none of them were willing to take that risk and stick their necks out for the Jacobite cause. So at Manchester, the War Council met yet again. Lord George said, All right, Your Grace, we gotta be heading back to Scotland. There are two British armies out there somewhere. The English Jacobites haven't turned up. Going farther is dangerous. But Charlie said, Look, the English Jacobites just need more time. The French are going to invade. Trust me. Murray said, All right, fine. But no farther than Derby. And then we'll see. Guys, get along. On December 1st, the Scottish army left Manchester on the way to the town of Derby. But the Jacobites marched between two armies, one to the north and one to the south, that were doing their best to close on the Jacobites and squish them like a bug. The one advancing slowly, very slowly from the north was under General Wade. The other, just forming, had recently received a new commander. And now we finally need to introduce the man who is going to be Charlie's nemesis. William Augustus, the Duke of Cumberland. King George II of the Hanoverian dynasty did not have a happy family, even if they weren't as bad as the Stuarts. King George and Queen Caroline were sharply critical and downright cruel sometimes to their argumentative, hard-partying oldest son and heir, Frederick, Prince of Wales. Now, if you're like James, there never was a King Frederick of England. Good on you for knowing that, number one. And number two, you're right. Frederick would die before his father, and his son, Prince George, would become King George III. But the love that George and Caroline denied their oldest son was showered on their youngest son, William Augustus, the Duke of Cumberland. So yeah, this is George III's uncle, the golden child of the Hanoverian dynasty. In 1745, William Augustus, Duke of Cumberland, was a whopping 24 years old, four months younger than his nemesis, Prince Charles. Cumberland was a military boy all the way. He'd always wanted to be a soldier. So now he was a general, mainly because he was a prince, not because he was actually good at his job. Dude was no military genius. He had demonstrated that at Fontenoy back in May, when the great French Marshal de Saxe beat him like a drum. 
Still though, he was the captain general of his father's armies, and that made him the most important British general of the 45. But compared to the absolute mess that was the Jacobite High Command, William had one big thing on his side, a clear rank structure and hierarchy. When it came to his orders being followed, William would not have to deal with Charlie's problems. But William Augustus was a sharp contrast to his arch-rival. Where Charlie was slim and fit, William was bulky, what we might call a hefty boy. Still tall and handsome, but he, he was big. Where Charlie was impulsive and bordered on reckless, William was cool and measured. Charlie was passionate, Cumberland was practical. The Duke of Cumberland was a meat and potatoes, horseback riding and racing kind of guy. A soldier's soldier who was popular with his troops. Cumberland gives me the feeling of like he's the high he's the jock, he's the high school quarterback, he's that guy. He was also critically the first of the Hanoverian dynasty to be born and raised in Britain. He was the first of them to be really British, and this made him some, somewhat popular compared to the rest of his family. William Augustus would be the symbol, the hero, that the Whigs would rally around during the 45. There was one other difference between William and Charlie. William had a cold, cruel, ruthless streak that Charlie never had. William is best known today not as a great military hero, but instead as Butcher Cumberland. We'll find out why next week. As the Jacobites marched towards Derby, their scouts learned that Cumberland's army was racing to meet them, to try and cut them off and force them to battle south of the city. So Lord George Murray decided to wave the red cape and see if the bull would charge. On December 2nd, Murray took the Highland Division and marched southwest as fast as possible. He came to the town of Congleton, announced the prince was on his way, and demanded rooming and beds for the army. As soon as Cumberland heard this news, he took the bait and marched west, assuming that Charlie was headed for Jacobite-friendly Wales. He only learned the truth by December 3rd, but by then it was too late. Murray had linked back up with Charlie, and they were marching like hell to the east. Cumberland's move west left the road open to Derby and to London. Wade's pitiful march south and Cumberland's sudden march west left a big gap open between the two British armies. If the Jacobites could shoot this gap and strike for London at the pace they'd been going for the last month, neither army would be able to catch them. And the government knew this. When they learned where Charlie was headed, they panicked. One of Cumberland's generals wrote to the capital, Are ye all mad that you don't send for 10,000 more foot, be they Hessians, Hanoverians, or devils, if they will but fight for us? The whole kingdom is still asleep. Our cavalry can't be here before February, and the pretender may be crowned at Westminster by that time. When Charlie marched into Derby at 6 p.m. on December 4th, his army's morale was high. The Highlanders sharpened their broadswords and prepared for the final push. London was a few days' march away. It was so close, you could almost smell it. And guys, we are here. It is December 5th, 1745. I've been talking this entire series about whether or not history could be changed, whether things could be different. And I've been doing my best to build everything up to this moment. This is the high water mark of the Jacobite cause, the true climax of our story, even more than the Battle of Culloden, the decision at Derby. On the morning of December 5th, Charlie and the War Council convened in Exeter House in the center of Derby. Charlie was bouncy and confident, ready to plan the march to London, but his good mood was about to be ruined. 
Lord George Murray spoke first. Look, Your Grace, military situation ain't good. We got two British armies trying to catch us, each of which outnumbers us two to one. We agreed to go this far on the condition that the English Jacobites would rise up and that the French would invade, neither of which has happened. We are in serious danger and we need to retreat to Scotland. Charlie said, no, look guys, London is right there. We have a clear shot. We can take it. We've got the government on the run. One more push and they'll fall over. We've come so far so fast and we've got them scared. Let's do it. Murray said, look kid, even if we take London, what makes you think we can hold it? We have 5,500 men. That is a city of almost a million people. There's just no way. No, no, we've gone far enough. Where are the English Jacobites? Where are the French? You said you had their support. You promised they'd come. Now we're deep in the heart of England. Who knows if we can make it back? If we're going to keep going, we need to see proof. You say you've been in contact with the English Jacobites and the French. Show us a letter from anybody. Give us proof and we'll march on London. And Charlie had to come clean. The prince had to admit to their faces that he hadn't been in touch with the English Jacobites since before he arrived in Scotland. He had no confirmation of the French invasion plan, nothing written on paper. Despite insisting all this time that he was certain of these things, Charlie had nothing to back this up whatsoever. He had just assumed things would work themselves out. The room exploded. Even the Duke of Perth, who was usually on Charlie's side, was furious. Are you serious? Are you crazy? You don't have a shred of evidence? Not one word that the English or French will help us? And we came all this way on your promises. Enough is enough. You left us out of Scotland. And we followed you because we trusted you. We believed in you. And now the entire army is in danger of destruction. The war council fell apart. Accusations, interruptions, yelling. Everyone trying to talk over everyone else. Charlie's temper finally broke. He fell into a rage, accusing them all of treason. They had come all this way. They were so close. How could they turn back now? Come on, guys. It's right there. London is a few days' march away. Can't you see it? Can't you understand? In Charlie's mind, the Jacobite leadership had always faltered at the moment of triumph, always lacked the guts to make the game-winning play. They were five yards from the end zone, seconds on the clock. This was the moment. All the toxic relationships of the War Council were coming to a head. But more than that, the argument at Derby that morning was the culmination of the entire Jacobite cause. All its weaknesses, all its failures, were resolving and manifesting and exerting their force on this critical point. The Jacobites had failed on the national issue. The lack of trust between English, Scottish, and Irish Jacobites had broken the high command. They had failed on the political issue because Charlie's arrogant insistence on his divine right to rule and his belief that he didn't need to justify his decisions to anyone else alienated the war council. They failed on the religious issue. The Stuarts' stubborn insistence on their Catholic faith alienated them from most of England. They had failed on the economic issue. The New Order's peace and prosperity kept so many people so fat and happy and tied up with bribery and corruption that they weren't willing to risk their positions for the cause. And the four keys to any successful Jacobite uprising had failed to turn completely. The Scots had failed to come out in significant numbers, partially thanks to the power of the Presbyterian Kirk and partially thanks to Duncan Forbes. The English Jacobites had failed to turn out when they were needed the most. 
the French had failed to give substantial support. And when they finally had good, talented leaders, men like Charles and Murray in Perth, these men were unable to work together. All these factors were coming together to bring the Jacobite cause to a screeching halt at Derby. Was all this inevitable? Were the Jacobites just swimming against the historical current, unable to fight against all the unalterable variables, all the forces of history that worked against them? It looked hopeless from a military standpoint. Murray and the Scots had a lot of good reasons for not going on to London. But it is still heavily, heavily debated what would have happened if Charlie and the Jacobites marched on London. For a long time, many historians assumed that George was right. It would have been a total failure. But recent research has shown that Charlie's instincts were probably right. They had morale and momentum on their side. The British armies around them were worn out, ruined, tired, depressed. The British officers certainly were not confident about an encounter with the Jacobite army. London was panicking, the stock market was crashing, people were packing up and running away. Many secret Jacobites in the city were preparing for Charlie's arrival. There were nowhere near enough troops in London to defend it. And if Charlie got into the city, took the capital, won this enormous moral triumph, there was a strong likelihood that the Hanoverian government would have just collapsed. On top of that, the French were preparing to invade. They were getting ready to set sail, even as Charlie and his generals argued at Derby. The problem was that nobody in Derby knew any of this, and they had no way of knowing. They were in the dark, fog of war. Charlie was relying on the revolutionary instincts that had gotten him this far. Remember, when in doubt, do something. But that wasn't enough to convince his officers. Murray was wrong for all the right reasons. Charlie was right for all the wrong reasons. Charles decided to reconvene the war council that afternoon to see if he could drum up some more support and try to change some minds. He wasn't very successful, but when the council came back a few hours later, he prepared himself to make another passionate plea, another passionate speech. And there was still a chance. His charisma and charm and rhetoric and personality had pulled off miracles before. Maybe he could pull them off again. History tilted in the balance. What lay down the road to London? We'll talk about all the possibilities at the end of this series, but what if the new order fell? What if the glorious revolution was undone? What if the tide of history was reversed? What if, what if, what if? It was so close. It was right there. And as history tilted in the balance, someone gave it a shove. Just as the council resumed, a newcomer was brought into the room. He claimed to be an Irish Jacobite, and what he said shocked everyone. He said there were not two British armies. There were three. Cumberland's to the southwest, Wade's to the northeast, and a third army that the Jacobites hadn't known about. An army 9,000 strong at Northampton, blocking the way to London. And that did it. With this piece of news, the council was almost unanimous, even Charlie's strongest supporters. No way. Absolutely not. It's over. And once again, Charlie melted down. That fellow will do me more harm than all the Elector's army. You ruin, abandon, and betray me if you do not march on. He could see his destiny slipping away based on the words of this stranger. Charlie accused the man of being an English spy, but at this point his credibility was shot. No one trusted him. No one was buying his excuses. Which was too bad, because once again, Charlie was right for the wrong reasons. Let's rewind 
to earlier that day. Cumberland's army was marching as fast as they could to the northeast through the snow of the English winter, trying to intercept the Jacobites before they reached London. But they were very clearly losing the race. On the morning of December 5th, Cumberland met an agent named Dudley Bradstreet, an English intelligence agent, who had word of the Jacobites' movements. Cumberland took this guy aside and said, Look, I need you to sneak into the Jacobite camp. Buy us some time. Slow them down. 24 hours. Do whatever you have to do. Just do it. And a few hours later, supposedly an Irish Jacobite, but actually Dudley Bradstreet, was in front of the Jacobite War Council spinning a bogus story about 9,000 soldiers waiting for them at Northampton. As Bradstreet said later, Observe that there were not nine men at Northampton to oppose them, much less 9,000. The army that convinced the War Council to turn back did not exist. Probably one of the greatest triumphs in the history of London's Secret Service. James Bond stepped back, Dudley Bradstreet takes the crown. British intelligence always going to get you. Whether Bradstreet tipped the scale or whether the council had made up their mind anyway, Prince Charles had no choice but to agree. The Scots would retreat. They would retrace their steps and turn their backs on London. On the morning of December 6th, 1745, with the defeated prince at their head, the Jacobites turned around and headed towards Scotland and their destiny. Historians, like I've said, have debated ever since. Should the Jacobites have kept going to London? Now, like I've said again, Murray and the Scots had very sound, logical reasons for turning back at Derby. The army was in enormous danger. On paper, everything looked like it was an incredibly perilous situation for the Jacobite army. But saving the army didn't matter if they lost the war. Yeah, the military situation looked bad, but this narrow point of view blinded them to the fact they didn't really have another viable strategy. Just hanging out in Scotland was never going to win the kind of victory they needed to win to defeat the new order, the decisive blow that could destroy the Hanoverian dynasty. By retreating from Derby, the Jacobites had decided to fight a war of attrition, the very kind of war they were always going to lose. It set them on the road to Culloden. So yes, they should have marched on, because this was the only way to win. Murray and his faction had missed the forest for the trees, failed to see the big picture for the details. But Charlie, who did see the big picture, failed to convince them of his vision, had ignored details until they mattered, had acted with the arrogance that came with the ideology of divine right, and had lost all his credibility. He was right, but he had blown it. The decision at Darby, the decision to turn back, the second of today's three big decisions, was the turning point of the 45. Because Charlie was right, they would never get another chance like this. Despite brief successes here and there, it was all downhill from here. They'd scared the new order like hell, but at the end of the day, the new order was still standing. And this allowed them to gather their forces and their resources and prepare, once and for all, to crush the 45. The Jacobite army retreated north throughout the bleak December. As they retreated, the Highlanders' morale fell and the prince's spirit sank. He was sullen, moody, withdrawn, no longer the shining figure that had traveled south. The Highlanders were furious that they had been denied their battle, groaning with anger when they realized that they were retreating. But for all that, the Jacobite withdrawal from England was a masterful military operation. 
Murray directed the retreat with a lot of skill, even as they were closely pursued by the British forces. Cumberland was hot on their heels with his cavalry, and so was another force detached from Wade's army. This little force was led by, of all people, James Oglethorpe, founder of the colony of Georgia and the city of Savannah. Oglethorpe had been back in Britain to try and recruit a force to fight the Spanish in Georgia, and he led his Georgia Rangers on an epic crossing of the Pennine Mountains to try and cut off Charlie's retreat. With Cumberland and Oglethorpe almost on top of them, Murray led the rear guard in a skirmish at Clifton on December 18, 1745, to buy time for the baggage, train, and artillery to make their escape. In a brilliant little operation with about 400 men on each side, Murray and the Highlanders punched Cumberland's advance guard in the face a couple of times before falling back. When he asked Charlie for reinforcements to finish the job, though, Charlie refused to send any real help to him, basically saying, oh, oh, now you want to fight, huh? Is that it, Murray? Yeah, we're at that level. We're at that level of petty at this point. It, this is just childish, and it's only going to get worse. Guys, get along. When the Jacobite army reached Carlisle, Charlie made one of his worst decisions of the war. He left the newly raised Manchester Regiment of English Jacobites to guard the fortress of Carlisle while the rest of the army continued to retreat. This was supposedly to leave a foothold for the Jacobites to come back to England at some later date. Like say, hey, I'm not completely evacuating England. I'm going to be back. Here are some troops I'm leaving behind just to make sure you know that. But Charlie should have watched Disney's Frozen and just let it go. Because in reality, this just sacrificed the only major English Jacobite commitment to the 45. When Cumberland arrived at Carlisle, he blasted the fortress apart with his artillery and forced it to surrender by December 30th. And it was at this point that the British and Cumberland began to reveal what would happen to the Jacobites when they fell into British hands. 27 captured members of the Manchester Regiment were executed, including nine officers who were transported to London. In a throwback to the Middle Ages, they were hanged, drawn, and quartered, the same fate given to William Wallace 400 years earlier. Most of the other men were shipped off to the colonies, or in the terms of the time, transported or deported. The new order was fighting for its life, and no punishment could be too harsh for traitors to the state. The skirmish at Clifton and the siege of Carlisle were the last major engagements ever to be fought on English soil. From now on, the war would be fought in Scotland, and thanks to the decision at Derby, that was where the war would end. So while Charlie, Murray, Cumberland, and all of our other main characters were playing musical thrones down in England, things were still going on in Scotland. Just because the main cast is off doing one thing, that doesn't mean things are quiet everywhere else. So meanwhile in Scotland. The government for one thing had been busy. Throughout October, November, December 1745, Duncan Forbes and the Earl of Loudoun had been gathering pro-government clans at Inverness to fight the Jacobites. And by December, they'd put together a sizable little force of 2,000 Highland militia, 
mostly from clans Mackay and Sutherland. Chief Norman MacLeod of the MacLeod clan had also joined Forbes and Loudon. This was one of the guys that was supposedly pro-Jacobite, but who Forbes had blackmailed into supporting the government. In for a penny, in for a pound, let's go. MacLeod called out his clan with a fiery cross to fight for King George. See, this is where the logic of the 45, being Scotland versus England, or even Highlands versus Lowlands, begins to fall apart. The more you look at it, the more the 45 looks like a Scottish civil war. Highland clans would fight each other. Some Highland clans even fought within themselves. Clans used the opportunity to settle old scores, like the McDonald's and the Campbells, or the Camerons and the Campbells, or... Well, lots of people had a bone to pick with the Campbells, who were doing their best to disrupt Jacobite recruitment in the Highlands. The Highland winter rang, and the mountains roared with the blasts of muskets and the clash of broadswords. The Jacobites were also receiving strength from a different source. If I need to remind you, the northeast lowlands around Aberdeen, Perth, and Peterhead were hardcore Episcopalian country, and this was the most fertile Jacobite recruiting ground. It was also the destination for any French support. These were the only ports where French privateers could slip past Admiral John Bing's blockade to deliver supplies and troops to help Charlie's cause. The town of Montrose was the main landing site for these much-needed injections of French assistance. The most important French help so far arrived on November 24th at Montrose. Lord John Drummond, the Duke of Perth's older brother, a Scottish Jacobite exile, arrived with 800 regular French troops and the critical heavy artillery that the Jacobites would need to take the British fortresses. The units Drummond had brought were two French regiments made up of fellow exiles. The first was his own Royal Ecossois, the Royal Scots, and the other was a detachment from the Irish Brigade called the Irish PK. These were the first regular French troops to arrive and support the Jacobite cause, and they were both Scottish and Irish units, so the French aren't sending their own people to do this. That shows you how high priority they place on helping the Jacobites. Unfortunately for the Jacobites, this was the last real help the French would give. As soon as they learned the Jacobites were retreating from Derby, Louis XV cancelled the invasion of England. Even though they tried to send more help up to Scotland, very little of this assistance would make it through in time, and by then, it would already be too late. The tension in northern Scotland came to a head at the Battle of Inverurie on December 23, 1745, while Charlie is marching north from Clifton. If you need any more demonstration of how complicated this whole conflict was, and that not all Scots or even Highlanders were Jacobites, the pro-government forces, the pro-New Order forces, were Scottish Highlanders under Chief Norman MacLeod. The Jacobite forces were Scottish Lowlanders under Lord Lewis Gordon, reinforced by some of the Royal Ecossois. MacLeod's clansmen were routed in an embarrassing defeat. This severely reduced the threat that Forbes and Loudon posed from Inverness and allowed John Drummond to move his forces south to meet up with Charlie's forces coming out of England. Alright, and we're back to the main Jacobite army. We are caught up with events in Scotland. The ongoing reality show that was the main Jacobite army recrossed the Esk River on December 20th and marched into southwest Scotland. Unfortunately for them, this was one of the unfriendliest areas they had entered so far. Southwest Scotland was hardcore Presbyterian and Whig country, 
and Glasgow had benefited immensely from the new order through extensive trade with the American colonies. It was one of the most anti-Jacobite cities in Britain, and Charlie was about as popular in Glasgow as a yeast infection. With Drummond's reinforcements, Charlie's army now numbered around 9,000 men, the largest force the Jacobites would ever field during the 45. But this was still 3,000 less than the Earl of Mard had raised back in 1715, and he sucked, remember? So why were their numbers still so low? A lot of this was due to those divisions in the Highlands and the Lowlands, but as always, there was still Duncan Forbes and his vast Highland web. His policy of undermining clan authority, dividing the clans against each other, and raising clans for the government had bit deep into Jacobite numbers. His influence was so dangerous that Charlie had tried to have him kidnapped back in October. And one Jacobite wrote that, Had the Lord President been as firm a friend of the Stuarts as he was an opponent, we should have seen an army of 18,000, not 5,000, invade England. Charlie and his generals now had to confront the same old question. What now? They spent Christmas and New Year's at Glasgow trying to figure that out, as 1745 turned into 1746. No one really knew what to do next. Charlie was still sulking, Murray wanted to wait for more French support, and no one really had a strategy to replace Charlie's idea of invading England. Finally, just because uh, we gotta do something, I guess, the Jacobites made the decision to link up with Drummond's reinforcements and besiege Stirling Castle. Stirling is a big strategic choke point, just like we've seen over and over in this podcast. Think of the Khyber Pass in Afghanistan, Malta's position in the Mediterranean. Add Stirling to that list. It's the only really usable crossing of the Fourth River, the only good road between northern and southern Scotland, and it passes across Stirling Bridge. Stirling has been such an important crossing throughout history that many of Scotland's most famous battles have been fought in the area. William Wallace's battles at Stirling Bridge in 1297 and Falkirk in 1298, Robert the Bruce's great victory at Bannockburn in 1314, Sheriff Muir back in 1715. This is because Stirling is the key to holding Scotland. So the Jacobites began the siege of Stirling on January 6th, and with the arrival of John Drummond's heavy siege guns, it would only be a matter of time. In theory. In practice, the Jacobite army was garbage at siege warfare. Their resident siege engineer was Mirabel de Gordon, uh, a French officer who came highly recommended, but turned out to be about as useful as a chocolate teapot. The Highlanders refused to do any of the heavy siege work since they thought it was beneath their dignity, so the lowlands and the French regulars had to do all the lifting. Finally, Charlie had gotten sick. He finally seemed to suffer a physical collapse after the amount of energy he'd been pushing out for the last few months, and he seemed to be losing all that wonderful charisma that had carried him through the uprising so far. He was being nursed back to health by a local girl, Clementina Walkinshaw, who would later on, after this is all over, become his mistress and give birth to his only child. With their prince sick in bed, distracted by a woman, and increasingly demoralized after the decision at Derby, the siege of Stirling stagnated. It went nowhere. And this gave the Jacobites' enemies an opportunity. The Duke of Cumberland had been sent back to London in order to coordinate the defenses of southern England against the rumor of a French invasion. As we have seen, the invasion had been canceled, but the British didn't know that. So who was commanding British forces in Scotland at this point? 
In Cumberland's absence, General Wade would have been in charge, but the ancient general had finally been relieved of command, and I imagine he was just as happy as anyone else. So command of the army in Scotland fell to Lieutenant General Henry Hawley. And this guy was a real piece of work. General Henry Hawley was, supposedly, a good tactician, though his performance will not bear that out. He was also infamously strict and draconian, a downright tyrant of a leader who was hated by his troops. In an age where military discipline was famously severe, Hawley stood out for his cruelty. Yeah, it was already bad, he was worse. He was a big fan of floggings and executions especially. Hawley supposedly kept the corpse or the remains of an executed deserter in his tent, hanging up, just so he could look at it, or as a reminder to others. Accounts differ as to whether he kept the poor guy's bones just hanging up or his flayed skin. Either one of those is bad. That's not, you know, not positive leadership skills here. I assume he's going to be the villain in the next Saul movie. As soon as he took command in Scotland, the first order he gave was to start setting up gallows. There was a reason they called him Hangman Hawley. But his forces had been building up in Edinburgh for quite some time. He had been receiving reinforcements. So when Stirling Castle came under siege from the heavy Jacobite guns, Hawley decided that he needed to go out and confront the Jacobites. But Hangman Hawley's army was in bad shape. He had around 8,000 men. 12 infantry and 5 cavalry battalions, along with local militia from Edinburgh and Glasgow. But his infantry were exhausted after marching all over England for two months in the dead of winter. His cavalry was even worse than that. Half of them were the same units that had just run away at Preston Pans. His artillery was a hodgepodge of unorganized ordnance. He just wasn't ready for a battle. But Hawley was certain that his, his troops would succeed. Back in 1715, he had led cavalry at the Battle of Sheriffmuir, and it seemed that the Jacobites didn't do very good under a cavalry charge. This, and the Jacobite retreat a month earlier, caused him to hold Prince Charles' army in contempt. He said, I do and always shall despise these rascals. I intend to drive the rascally scum out of Stirling. They will go off or else they are mad. Famous last words, buddy. On January 13th, Hawley began his march out of Edinburgh to the west, Stirling and the Jacobite army in his crosshairs. He camped near the town of Falkirk, the site of William Wallace's battle against Edward I in 1298, confident that the rebels would retreat rather than face his glorious army. But surprisingly, the Jacobite high command agreed on something for once. They weren't going to back down from Hawley's challenge. Thanks to new recruits and Drummond's reinforcements, they had the strongest army they had ever mustered so far. Indeed, it was the strongest they would ever have. If there was a time to fight, everyone agreed that it was now. So when they learned where Hawley's army was positioned, Charles, Murray, and Drummond moved their troops out from the siege to attack on January 17, 1746. The Duke of Perth was left with the force to guard Stirling Castle, while the Jacobites approached Falkirk with almost 8,000 men. For the second great battle of the campaign, the two forces, just like at Preston Pans, would be about equal in numbers. The Battle of Falkirk Muir, in fact, would be the largest battle of the 45. 
This is still a much smaller battle than the big boy brawl at Fontenoy, where each side had upwards of 50,000 men. The battles of the 45 were small by European standards, and they were also short by European standards. None of them really lasted much more than an hour. Colonel O'Sullivan executed the Jacobites' overall plan for the battle, even though the plan belonged mostly to Lord George Murray. While Drummond led some of the French regulars in a feint or a diversion towards the government camp to the north, Murray led the Highlanders on a wide flanking march to the southwest. Their mission was to seize the high ground of Falkirk Muir before Hawley could catch what was happening. The British general had heard reports that the Jacobites were approaching, but he refused to be distracted from his lunch. I guess it was a really good lunch. Or he was looking on Amazon for new corpses to hang in his tent or something. You know. Only when Murray's advance units were about two miles away, at about 2.30 p.m., late in the day, did Hawley suddenly look up and realize that he was minutes away from a battle. His troops came out of their camp in bits and pieces, racing to try and seize the high ground of Falkirk Muir. The weather during the Battle of Falkirk Muir was atrocious. A furious storm was coming in from the west, and soon the ridge at Falkirk was being slashed by wind and pelted with driving rain and snow. One Jacobite remembered, For now the day, from being an exceeding fine one, became on a sudden obscure. The sun which till then had shone upon us was now as if it were eclipsed, and all the elements in confusion, so that the heavens seemed to fulminate their anger down upon us. Charlie seemed like his old self, riding like a demon through the storm, urging his soldiers to hurry. The dark sky loomed overhead and the wind whistled past Highlander and Redcoat alike. Imagine how cold this was. This was January in Scotland. That's almost um, you know, on latitude with northern Canada. But importantly, very importantly, the wind was blowing from the west to the east, right into the faces of Hawley's army. Hangman Hawley had been caught by surprise. His deployment was last minute and disorganized. He sent his dragoons to attack the Jacobites first, both to seize the high ground quickly and out of his misplaced belief that a good cavalry charge would do the rebels in. But this was a terrible idea. Not only did the cavalry churn the road into mush, slowing down the infantry, but their forward deployment would send them right into the teeth of the Jacobite onslaught. Murray deployed his troops on the high ground, excellent terrain for a solid highland charge. He commanded the right wing where Clan MacDonald, as always according to ancient tradition, took the place of honor on the far right. John Drummond was supposed to command the left wing, but no one could find him. He was late to the battle. As the two sides lined up for battle in the driving snow, one half of the Jacobite line was without its commander, and both Charlie and Colonel O'Sullivan, for whatever reason, failed to nominate someone to replace him. Jacobite command problems had struck once again. The Battle of Falkirk Muir truly began at around 4 p.m., when Hawley ordered his dragoons to charge the Jacobite right still is operating on the assumption that a single cavalry charge would scatter this rabble. It was a terrible mistake. 700 cavalry thundered across the 200 yards that separated the two lines, swords raised and horses whinnying in the icy wind of a North European winter. Lord George Murray led his units on foot with a musket in his hand. He moved the Highlanders forward slowly, yelling at them to hold their fire as they faced down the charging British cavalry coming across the field at them. 
Finally, when they were about 15 yards away, he fired his own musket as a signal, and his Highlanders loosed a volley into the faces of the British cavalry, killing at least 80 men on the spot as horses threw their wounded riders. The British dragoons blundered into the Jacobite lines, into a terrible, confused melee. The Scots hacked and slashed at the redcoats, dragging men off their horses and disemboweling the steeds with their broadswords. Reinforcements arrived to join the fight, and within half a minute, the British cavalry was racing for somewhere, anywhere, that didn't look like tartan and sound like bagpipes. Some escaped to the north, running through a gauntlet of musket fire from the Jacobite lines. Others ran right through Hawley's infantry, scattering their own men. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for. With the cavalry scattered, the Jacobite army advanced at a rapid pace until they were at nearly point-blank range. The British infantry raised their muskets, but many of their cartridges had been soaked by the driving rain and failed to fire. In the volley they did fire went wild and high due to the wind being in their faces. The Jacobite muskets were wet too, but they didn't care. They fired what they could, dropped their guns, drew their broadswords, raised a cheer for Charles and Scotland, and crashed into the British lines like a plaid lawnmower. The Highland Charge once again. And the predictable happened. Almost before the enemy could reach them, the British infantry ran for it. The Jacobites piled after them, screaming and chopping and cheering. In the confusion and chaos of the winter storm, the Jacobite generals lost control of their soldiers almost immediately, and everyone was running in every direction. It was just a mess. Except that not all of Hawley's infantry had run. This wasn't a repeat of Preston Pan's. Without coordination from General Drummond on the left flank, many of the Jacobite regiments had missed their intended targets. Three battalions of redcoats had taken shelter in a ravine. From this position, they began to fire into the surprised Highlanders on the left flank, who broke and ran away, assuming that they had been ambushed. The sound of unexpected musket fire from behind them freaked out many other Jacobite units, who also turned and ran because they thought the battle was turning against them. They thought they were surrounded. The confusion of the storm and the poor lines of sight led to one of the strangest occurrences of the 45 two battle lines running away from each other. Murray finally managed to regain some control over his units, and the prince led some of the regular French troops up to try and complete the victory. But Hawley rallied a rearguard, and they provided effective cover for the British army to make a clean escape. The Battle of Falkirk Muir, a confused, hopeless mess of an engagement, had lasted about 20 minutes. It had once again been a victory for the Jacobite cause, Hawley's humiliated army lost between 300 to 400 killed and wounded, and some prisoners, along with all their artillery pieces. Jacobite losses were minimal, around 130 killed and wounded, almost all on the left flank where they were ambushed by the British Redcoats. It was a bit like a replay of Preston Pants, it was just a bit like history repeating itself. Once again, the Jacobites stole a march on their foes and caught them out of position, on favorable terrain and in favorable weather. Once again, the British cavalry was almost worse than useless, running away at the first sign of danger. Once again, the shock and fury of the Highland Charge had driven the enemy to rout. Once again, the British had failed to coordinate their infantry, cavalry, and artillery, and the Jacobites were better tacticians. M many people viewed Hawley's utter failure in this battle as even worse than John Cope, since he was supposed to have a decent army, and he had been overconfident and completely careless. But there were differences. This was not just like Preston Pan's. 
Hawley's army remained intact, even if it retreated all the way back to Edinburgh. Its losses had been light, and the confusion of both sides let the British get away safely. The British army in Scotland was battered, but not scattered. Embarrassed, but not seriously damaged. Demoralized, but not broken. The survival of Hawley's army was due to, what else? A breakdown in the Jacobite High Command. As soon as the fight was over, everyone was pointing fingers and yelling at each other. Murray yelled at Drummond for arriving late. Drummond yelled at Murray for losing control of his men. Murray yelled at Sullivan, accusing him of being a coward. Get along. What else is new? Everyone was just mad at each other again, and nothing got accomplished. You can almost hear that reality show argument music in the background. You know what I'm talking about, where the music gets all dramatic over some silly little thing. Yep, that's what's going on again. What this meant was that no one pursued Hawley's beaten army. There was no follow-through to the Jacobite victory at Falkirk. The pass was complete, but the runner just immediately took a knee. The British had time to catch their breath, reorganize themselves, and get a new general. Because on January 29th, 12 days after Falkirk, the Duke of Cumberland arrived to take command. King George's golden boy was back, baby. He had barely been around for 24 hours before he was leading the army out of Edinburgh, once again in the direction of Stirling. Okay, take two. Let's see if we can beat them this time. The days since Falkirk had been good for the British, but bad for the Jacobites. The Highlanders were demoralized by the failure to follow up on the triumph, and as Highlanders always did with no forward movement, they started to go home. Desertion and morale were becoming a major problem. The siege of Stirling was so ineffective, they might as well have been shooting super soakers at it. Even though Falkirk had been a relatively cheap victory, the Jacobite army was somehow in worse shape afterwards, and it wasn't getting better. It was one of those rare occasions where the victory damages the victors almost more than the vanquished. When Cumberland marched towards the Jacobite army, Charlie was, as usual, spoiling for a fight. This would be the victory they needed. Let's go get them. He sent a message to Lord George asking him to prepare a battle plan for the confrontation with the Duke of Cumberland. But he was shocked by the reply he received. Murray and the clan chiefs told him that the army was in no condition to fight a battle. Their only course of action would be to retreat to the highlands. They could build up their numbers, capture the government forts, and rest up for the spring. Charlie was livid. Retreat? What do you mean? We just won a battle. You want us to pull back into the highlands, abandon the lowlands? For what? He reportedly banged his head against the wall, screaming and cursing Lord George's name before writing a reply. Is it possible that a victory and a defeat should produce the same effects, and that the conquerors should flee from an engagement while the conquered are seeking it? Shall we make the retreat you propose? How much more will that raise the spirits of our enemies and sink those of our own people? Can we imagine that where we go the enemy will not follow, and at last oblige us to a battle? What will become of our lowland friends? Shall we abandon them to the fury of our merciless enemies? Murray's decision to retreat into the Highlands after the Battle of Falkirk was meant to buy the Jacobites breathing room and conduct a guerrilla campaign from their mountainous homelands. But Lord George was once again missing the forest for the trees. By abandoning the Episcopalian lowlands, the Jacobites would not only lose their best recruiting ground, they would also lose their only lifeline of support from France, 
It would isolate the Jacobite army, away from their allies, in the barren highlands where food was scarce and the climate was harsh. Charlie was right, once again, but it didn't matter. He was outvoted. It was the third major strategic decision of the Jacobite War Council, decision number three, after the decision to invade England and the decision to turn back from Derby. But the decision to retreat to the Highlands, more than any other, would be fatal. On February 1st, the Jacobite army retreated from Stirling, forced to abandon the heavy guns they had waited so long to receive. The withdrawal was a confused mess, with units getting turned around and supplies being abandoned. One of the Jacobite ammunition dumps even exploded, killing a number of people, both civilians and soldiers. The pullout was a disaster. This all led to the final Jacobite War Council on February 2nd, 1746. Murray was in a towering rage, screaming at O'Sullivan, who screamed back. The council dissolved into blame, insults, and accusations of treason. Guys, as the Jacobites prepared to retreat into the highlands, their commanders, especially Charlie and Murray, were no longer on speaking terms. It was the final catastrophic breakdown of the high command. I don't even have the heart to tell them to get along anymore. It's pointless. You might as well just grab the popcorn, because this isn't even as bad as it's gonna get. And as the Jacobites argued, they were followed. William Augustus, Duke of Cumberland, and his British army trailed the Jacobites, lurking, waiting. Soon winter would end, soon spring would come, and then it would finally be time to destroy the rebellion, end the Jacobite cause, and see the new order triumphant. They marched knowing that the tide of history was on their side. The two armies marched north, almost like destiny drew them together. They were in the endgame, and everyone knew it. The armies of two British dynasties, of two British princes, Stuart and Hanoverian, Jacobite and New Order, the past and the future. They marched on the road to Judgment Day. At the end of that road was Culloden. Thanks a bunch for listening, as always. We are almost at the end of the 45. Thank you also for your continued support of this podcast. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies, especially if they're on your war council. If you want to read some of the stuff I've written or just check out a bunch of my ramblings, please go to my website and leave a comment at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. You want to support in other ways, you can find a donate button there as well. I'm also on Facebook or on Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod. You can even email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. Give me any piece of feedback you want. I want to know what you think. And tune those bagpipes one last time, because next week our story ends. Two British armies will meet at Culloden Moor to decide the fate of Britain, America, and the world. It is the conclusion to our epic tale that began so long ago, or, okay, two weeks ago. But also, check on Friday for another supplemental short round. I'll be talking for just a little bit about the two armies that are about to fight at Culloden, the rank and file, who these soldiers were, how they joined the army, what their tactics were like, what weapons they used, everything. It's going to help the Battle of Culloden make a lot more sense. So join me later this week for that on Friday. 
and next Monday for the exciting, heartbreaking conclusion of the 45 on Unknown Soldiers. Oh, oh, oh.